0: couple things to keep in mind, just directionally, when uh, you look at my PowerPoints, there's a lot of information on a PowerPoint, so I squeeze as much in as I can. I'm that way because I love the big picture context. So if we're going to quote the Council of Trent, I want you to see as much of that section as you you can be exposed to. Now then, the question is, how do we narrow it down? And what I do is I color code uh, certain sections that I want to draw attention to. And then I have an outline on the side to describe um, what I'm referring to. So as you're looking at a a massive amount of information, I've been called the fire hydrant. You're just going to bam, three sessions in one. That's how you're going to work through this is look for the color, look for the outline on the side that will connect that. And I'll try to draw attention to it. If I need to point, I will try to do that. This is more of a workshop, so I took the liberty of having the media dynamic here. So justification, assurance, and reformation. What I want to do is start with an example. I'm going to go by that one, but that's an illustration that I found on Brain Games. We often don't think how culture uh, reflects our culture, how we relate to one another, reflects a justification and the principles of acceptance and approval. It's embedded in who we are. Uh, Romans 2 says that the law of God is written on our hearts. So we are constantly using a norm, that'd be another word for law, law or standard to judge one another's behavior. And in this Brain Games, it's very intriguing. They did this little study in which they invited all these people to a a session of empowerment, and the speaker took the first five minutes to just talk about the greatness of empowering one another through social media, and then he went off on rambling. Uh, he, He talked about cows and green and hot dogs and it just he mixed. It just made no sense. In fact, I'd love to have showed the four minutes, but it would take up our time. <laughs> and, and and the cameras are watching the crowd. How are they going to respond? You could see the bewilderment as they're looking at one another. And it was a study to see how would they respond to gibberish. Well, he f- closed it in five minutes and said, that's it. Hope you enjoyed my talk. And they had a plant who stood up and gave a, a standing ovation. And everyone else looked at each other and thought, well, we must need to do the same thing. So they all stand together and... Give this mass is gibberish, a standing ovation, and there's about 500 people there for this one guy. and so of course, they have to do interviews. why did you do that? What did you think about it? why well, didn't understand it? It just sounded ridiculous. Then why did you stand? Because everyone else was standing. I must have missed something. This is an issue of what is right, what's the right thing to do, and then how can I be accepted and approved in this case in the eyes of people? Justification, acceptance, approval, reflect who we are, how we function and relate to one another. And the big issue that the Reformation is dealing with is how do we relate to God? How do we stand before God? Can we be accepted and approved? And what went along with that is the issue of assurance, because if I know that I stand right before God, that he approves of me and accepts me in Christ, then we have confidence in what Christ has done for us. The Reformation understood that assurance can be looked at subjectively, personally. That is, my personal assurance and confidence. That can wane. That can increase and decrease. First John says, When your heart testifies against us, we know, though, these things of what Christ has done. So they understood that assurance can wane and, and, and wax, grow and decrease, but not the object of assurance, Christ Jesus, that our confidence is in Christ and what he's done because he's secured it all. So that if assurance was to grow, we needed to look at the promises of God in Christ, and assurance would grow. If we were in sin, we'd turn our eyes away from Christ and our assurance would decrease. Because we're not looking at the promises of God in Christ, we were looking at ourselves. So justification assurance became a major, major theme. Uh, assurance, really a huge issue um, in the early Reformation. Biblical description, I just kind of wrote a synopsis up here. The legal declaration of right standing. That serves as the basis for approval and acceptance. So what's the, what's the standard? And is my behavior right in light of that standard? And if it met that, then one is approved or accepted. In the court of law, one's behavior is declared right or just when behavior is vindicated. It's validated by the law. It's in, in keeping with. The, the Hebrew word that deals with iniquity uh, comes from this idea of inequity, to be unbalanced. So you think of the scales of justice. Iniquity is to be unbalanced. And what justice does is it, it It brings equality it brings if you really want to talk about equality and fairness, it does so by executing punishment or providing the as we see the necessary positive righteousness that 's needed to bring equity romans three two thirteen the doers of the law will be justified. Pastor Pat took us through that, but that also affects relationships because romans two one uh, says we pass judgment on one another. <laughs> So you might talk about relationships as far as how we justify ourselves with one another. One is approved and accepted when behavior is validated by social norms. Well, norms is just a law word, by the way. It's just a standard. And ultimately, we know, again, the law is written on the heart. Now, assurance, the Reformation separated assurance from justification. It needed to be done. Because your right standing with God is God's work. It's God's work in Christ, he obeyed perfectly, met the requirements of the law. He paid the punishment, the curse of the law. And God validated that way by raising him from the dead and exalting him. So he gained the reward. It's um, his justification, if you will. He's declared right, the perfect Savior. So it's secure. And in light of that, then, my assurance was resting in the promises of God in Christ. So we could say the subjective or personal confidence that one has been objectively, so that's outside of me, declared right and therefore approved and accepted. Biblical data, I just wanted to give a... There's so many texts we could go through on justification assurance. We could look at assurance and 1 in First John and Hebrews, come boldly to the throne of grace. But we really needed to narrow it down. And I thought probably the, a great text that captures both justification and assurance is Romans 4. And notice again, you got the color coordination, so you should be able to go here and go, okay, there, matching it up. That just helps us move quickly along. So one, the certainty of justification is through Christ's death and resurrection. Notice the past tense of this. So it's been done in history. It's not looking to me and my performance. It's what Christ has already done. And is there any more to add to him? No, it can't be because he was raised. Who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. That's sealed. There's nothing I can do to add or take from that, as Rome is going to tell us. And we have some threats against the gospel and evangelicalism today saying we can add to or take away from justification. That seals it up. He's been raised. Think of his ascension, not just the empty tomb, but his ascension and exaltation as king who's conquered. Five one, moving over to here, the certainty of peace. And I love this. It's not only through his work, but also his person, his offices. Therefore, since we have been justified, so done deal, been justified, by faith, we have peace, this is a present reality of peace because we already have been justified through faith, with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I love that. Lordship underlines his deity. So how are we going to have peace with God? Christ, because he is fully God. Jesus underlies this saviorship, which takes us back to what he did, being delivered up, the crosswork, and his resurrection. And Christ is messiahship, that he is God's representation to man. He's the representative. He's the, the king that brings us to God. So he is sealed up, peace, because of the justification that we have already received, which is connected and sealed by his resurrection. And then the certainty of access. There's no going in and out. There's a modern movement saying that you are brought in to the church by grace and you you can lose your justification based on your, your deeds, your failures, and then you can get back in. There's none of that going on here in verse 2. So there's certainty of access through Christ into a gracious standing for God's glory. I love it. Through him, so you're not letting Christ go here. Keep emphasizing his work and his person, which you know about his offices and what he's done in verse 25, you need to bring that right into here. Through him, all that he's done, we have also, notice again, done deal, obtained access by faith into this grace. So it's all of his provision. That's what grace is. God does the work. God provides in Christ in which we stand and we rejoice. And such, This is such a firm stance that we can rejoice in hope. It's a secure hope because we stand because we have obtained access of the glory of God. So God's glory is tied to this. That's huge. So there's no losing and going in out of this access. There's no losing and gaining justification here. Why? Because it's tied specifically to the very glory of God. That's at stake and secured. Therefore, Paul can say in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, I wanted to, again, expose you to the London Baptist Confession, so you've you've got that in your hand. Hopefully, you could look at it if you can see with the lights. Or I just sat down and typed out this section from chapter 11 on justification. And because I don't have time to read the entire section, what I'm going to need to do is reference the outline here and then draw our attention to some major points in the, the content of the London Baptist Confession. So first of all, when it comes to justification and obedience... Because that's tied to assurance, right? If I, my disobedience and obedience gains and loses justification, how can I be assured? In fact, as we're going to see, the Roman Catholic Church did not want people being assured because they're not going to come back to the church and back to the Pope. and We could go on in that. We'll, we'll get to it in a moment. The confession separates justification from any and all obedience related to our, our doing. And that's the yellow. You can see it, not by infusing righteousness into them. So one way that this heresy wanted to say, well, it's God's righteousness, and it's infused and placed into you. Well, that intermingles then God's righteousness with yours, his doing with your doing. It sounds good. God is infusing it into you. But the Reformers understood, nah. what, what that does is commingles. It's cooperation then. So they're going to say, not for anything wrought in them or done by them. Not by imputing faith itself. So faith itself isn't some quality of, of goodness and obedience. Some would say that. God justifies us because of the quality of your faith. If, if your faith is acceptable, that turns faith into works. Or any other evangelical obedience. That's, that's a huge statement that's being used in some modern preachers that uh, we have respected for many years. And it's the idea that God justifies you, but based upon your gospel obedience... God's infused his grace into you, Christ is working through you, then you will have a final justification at the great white throne and based upon your evangelical obedience, your gospel obedience, God will declare you righteous. Well, that sounds pretty, doesn't it? But it's, that's heresy. Again, that's me doing it. You call it gospel obedience to be declared right by God at the end of time? Now, what has that done with Christ's final justification in his resurrection? That resting in him, well, it denies that. Well, they say, well, well, we believe it. We believe that we're justified in Christ. But what you did is attach the final justification to my obedience, and you called it gospel. Okay? They're saying, that's out. Which faith they have not of themselves. They're even acknowledging that faith is not something that I muster up. That's a gift of God. So the confession wants to make very clear that justification is separate from any of our doing, even the, the quality of our faith, because it's a gift, faith itself. Number two. The confession connects justification to God's imputation of Christ's obedience, right? Separating long gospel. God provides all the obedience that we need in the work of Jesus Christ. So I want to make it very clear that justification is connected to God's reckoning, God's crediting of Christ's obedience to our account. So then he's all the blue. He freely justifies its grace by pardoning their sins and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous for Christ's sake alone, by imputing Christ's act of obedience into the whole law, and passive obedience in his death. So we've wrapped up the whole relationship to law as obedience. And soul righteousness by faith, it's the gift of God. So I want to make clear that justification has nothing to do with our obedience. That is, that he, he will not declare us righteous based on anything that we do, even the quality of our faith. And it's specifically connected to what Christ has done to obey. Three, The confession distinguishes, and I don't know if this is starting to get in the way here, the faith that receives justification as a resting principle from a doing principle. In other words, faith is not something that we do. It's resting. (laughs) So number two down here, faith thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness is the alone instrument of justification. So again, it's I'm not justified because of anything that I do, not even the quality of my faith. It is Christ. We rest in Christ's work alone. And that's where the confidence is. We ask, was Christ successful? Did he obey? Did he receive the the entire punishment that I deserve so that I can have hope of eternal life? God's acceptance forever. Was he raised? Yeah. Was he exalted? Yes. That's my confidence. And then fourth, the confession clarifies that Christian obedience is a Fruit of faith. And it does want to deal with obedience, but it's the fruit of faith. And a faith that has already received justification. We've already been justified through faith in Christ. And that faith is living and active because it's connected to Jesus, because he's a life supply. So yet, it's not alone in the person justified. Notice they're already justified. But is ever accompanied with all other saving graces and is no dead faith, but works by love. That's because of a union with Jesus Christ, who gained his life by his Spirit, produces fruit in our life. But we've already, we're already declared righteous. We cannot lose that. This is a section on assurance. And here I, I'm going to try to be faster. <laughs> Chapter 18. Just again, the confession underlines this certainty of assurance. Why? Because Christ has accomplished it. So even though our assurance may grow weak, strong, his work is finished and complete. And the fact that God has declared us righteous and we accept that in Christ um, because of what Christ has done, that's certain. So they they acknowledge that there's certainty to our assurance. It can grow. As I, look to my, as I look to Christ, it can grow weak if I look to myself, but there's certainty. Uh, you'll see in this life, can be certainly assured. Number two, there's certainties. I'm picking up on the pink here. They even call it an infallible assurance. It's real. Uh, Three, the infallible assurance does not belong to the essence of faith. So recognizing that faith is a gift and that we can look even at that faith as a gift and have assurance. So they draw a distinction between faith and assurance. Oh, let's see. So number two, the confession distinguishes assurance as an infallible assurance. It's real. It's true. That belongs to faith. And that's in distinction from conjecture and probability, which is what the Roman Catholic Church would teach. It is not a bare, uh, conjectural, and probable persuasion grounded upon a fallible hope, but it is an infallible assurance. Because again, we're looking to Christ. Number three, the Confession describes two aspects of assurance. There's an objective-oriented assurance grounded in Christ's work as revealed in the Gospel. So the Bible calls us to a confidence at looking to Christ. We have a sure hope. That's an objective, outside of me, oriented assurance. So as I'm I'm looking for confidence, the Bible calls me to look to Christ. Is he raised? Yes. Have I acknowledged my sin and seen Christ? That's the gift of faith. I look to him. I have grown confidence in what he has done. That's the outward-looking assurance. But the Bible talks about an inward-looking assurance, a subjective, that's connected to the Spirit's work in the life. If I've truly trusted in Christ, there should be fruit. Because we're united with the living Christ, the resurrected Christ. I should see an acknowledgement and confession of sin, 1 John. I should see a love for believers, even when I'm discouraged by how I'm treated. There's something that just keeps drawing us out to want to serve (laughs) and minister. We go, why do I do that? Because I would not naturally in my flesh want to serve. And we look at that and say, it's because of what Christ has done for me, and I'm driven to serve. Ah, it's an encouragement that I can actually look inward at the fruit. So assurance from the confession acknowledged there's an outward and an inward. And the outward always controlled the inward. We keep looking at the promises of God in Christ. And then we look to the fruit in our life. And then we look back to Christ. Well, why? Because John 15, 1 and 2, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. He talks about abiding in him. So if you look at your fruit too long, (laughs) uh, you're going to get disoriented. (laughs) And you're going to start seeing the sins in your personal life, your evangelical obedience. You're going to see that they're not pure. And what does that do? It drives you back to the confidence that Christ has done it all because that fruit is going to come from from your living union with Jesus Christ. So that's the red here. If you looked over here, the inward evidence of the graces of the Spirit unto which promises are made on the testimony of the Spirit of adoption. So when you're, you cry out, Father, Abba, Father, and you're looking to Him, for his promises, that's a testimony of the spirit within you at work. Those are fruits of the spirit. Um, and then letter see as a fruit thereof, keeping the heart both humble and holy. So it grows us. So there's, uh, the, the, the at least the London Baptist Confession is reflecting the Reformation. is understanding that there's assurance that looks outward to Christ. Because we're attached to Christ, we can look inward at the fruit in our life. Now that sets us up then for Rome's attack. Okay, I'm gonna start by looking at Sinclair Ferguson. Uh this is not Sinclair Ferguson, that's Bellarmine. <laughs> He's he is hostile to the gospel. <laughs> um but this is a quote from Sinclair Ferguson. And so now we're moving, we, we've seen the Reformation perspective. I could have taken you through the Westminster Confession, uh larger and shorter and we would have seen the same aspects. We could have um yeah, but because we passed out the London Baptist, and that's where we are, um an essential agreement. I thought we'd focus on that. Now we're going to look at the attacks, and I need this section to help us understand that these modern threats. Are they're they're clothed in in Rome's garments, okay? And I, I want you to see that. So Bellarmine, uh, cardinal, 1542 to 1621, was Pope a Clement VIII's personal theologian, and uh, Sinclair Ferguson says. On one occasion, he wrote, the greatest of all Protestant heresies is, and so he has this kind of hang on by thread for a moment. We're asking, is it justification? Is it scripture alone? What is it? He wrote, the greatest of all Protestant heresies is assurance. Now, this is an interesting quote from Ferguson that I think really lays the table. And this really summarizes the entire session. So if you get this, and again, if you want a copy, just make sure you send it to my email address. I'll get it to you. Unless well, she just want the book. If justification is not by faith alone and Christ alone by grace alone, if faith needs to be completed by works, if Christ's work is somehow repeated, if grace is not free and sovereign, then something always needs to be done to be added for final justification to be ours. And that is exactly the problem. If final justification is dependent on something we have to complete, it is not possible to enjoy assurance of salvation. For then, theologically, final justification is contingent and uncertain, and it is impossible, apart from anyone, apart from special revelation, Rome conceded that, to be sure of salvation. But if Christ has done everything, if justification is by grace, without contributory works it is received by faith's empty hands, then assurance, even full assurance, and the London Baptist Confession said infallible, is possible for every believer." Reformation context so these are the, this is the attack Council of Trent 1545 to 1563 there were a number of sessions that they had really it's been called a counter reformation so they're trying to attack the Protestant um, issues on the gospel of justification and assurance and again I can't read everything I've got two slides on just this issue but I tried to capture a summary statement here for you a little picture might help <laughs> don't know if it does Sometimes just a little rest for a moment. So, number one, Rome taught that the justified could grow in justification. And you'll see that if you parallel with the red here. They, through the observance of the commandments of God and of the church, faith cooperating with good works, they believe that could happen because of infusion, increase in that justice which they have received through the grace of Christ and are still further justified. Okay, so they didn't deny justification even by faith in Christ. They argued, though, that there's a continual growth of that based on our works. Two, Rome taught that the justified could be forsaken by God if one forsook him. There's a Presbyterian um, garment of this called Federal Vision we'll look at. So you don't need to write it down, but you'll see it come up on a slide in a little bit. They believe that you're elected by God's grace into the community and and enjoyed that justification of Christ there, but based on your obedience or disobedience, you're in or you're out. What's the difference between this? Just different kind of language. It's more Presbyterian language. It's called Federal Vision. But they taught that the justified could be forsaken by God. You see that? Have been once justified by his grace. Again, they're not denying justification. Unless he be first forsaken by them. Three, Rome taught that the justified could fall from justification and be justified again. If they've fallen, chapter 14, from the received grace of justification, they may be again justified. So there's this growth that can happen, decrease, losing it. Of course they're going to say there's no confidence, no assurance. Oh, another one. For justice, which is called ours because that we are justified from its being inherent in us, that same is the justice of God because that it is infused into us of God. So we're going to say here's God justifying, but that righteousness is infused into us, and now there's the cooperation so we can gain, lose. Here's the canons of uh, pronouncements of damnation, <laughs> anathema. They say men are. For anyone saith. So the blue is reflecting what the Reformation would, would say to a certain degree, and the best that they can capture it. Uh, so they're confronting that. If men are justified either by the sole imputation of the justice of Christ or by the sole remission of sins, so they're trying to deal with the passive and active obedience of Christ there, best as they can reflect that, to the exclusion of the grace and the charity which is poured forth in their hearts by the Holy Ghost and is inherent in them, so that's your works, anathema, damned. Another canon, they're confronting this certain, if you say there's certain and absolute infallible certainty, we just saw that <laughs> in the London Baptist Confession, damned, right? Chapter 24, if anyone says that the justice received is not preserved and also increased before God through good works, but that the said works are merely the fruits and signs of justification obtained, damned. Canon 30, that the guilt is remitted and the debt of eternal punishment is blotted out in such wise there remains not any debt of temporal punishment to be discharged either in this world or in the next in purgatory before the entrance to the kingdom of heaven can be opened. Let him be anathema. New perspective is Paul, federal vision. There's some major evangelical players using this term, gaining entrance into heaven based upon your evangelical or gospel or Christian obedience. That has already been, that, that's what Rome is saying. And if you don't believe that, they're saying then you're damned. We got evangelicals today saying the same kind of stuff gaining eternal life, gaining salvation by your gospel obedience. Rome would go, yeah, good job. We're saying, wait a minute, what's, what's happened? Uh, just a couple inter- interesting little uh, quotes um, in the quest for full assurance by Joel Beakey. Um, He's just saying this really captures the medieval. Roman Catholicism, Gregory said, the greater our sins, the more we must do to make up for them. Whether we have done enough to atone for them, we cannot know until after death. We can never be sure of success. Assurance of salvation, the feeling of safety engendered by it are dangerous for anybody and would not be desirable even if possible. Of course they're going to conclude that if it's based on me and my doings and not doing. They're saying that's bad pastoral advice is to help people grow in assurance. They they want to keep us in doubt. Keep us coming. John McLeod, jumping down here, said in the Reformation Age, as he's dealing with Scottish theology, uh, itself, there was much of an assurance of personal salvation enjoyed by a generation of believers on which the gospel of the free grace of God and justification burst in all its wonder as something altogether new. So As they realized, wait, the gospel is what God has done for us in Christ. It's secure. He's been raised. It brought so much freedom, (laughs) encouragement, and resting. A couple slides just dealing with Luther and Calvin, just letting the, some of the reformers speak. Luther believed that assurance is the birthright of every Christian. And he argued, second paragraph, that it's a pernicious error that man cannot know whether or not he is in a state of grace, especially when Romans 4 and 5 argued that we have access, we have obtained access, done, by which the whole world is seduced. So it's a tactic then to seduce us into following false teachers is to attack assurance, ultimately trying to attack the confidence that we have in Christ. He talks about the blue here, the confident laying hold of the promise is called faith. It justifies, unless we think, well, faith justifies. He says, not as our own work, but as the work of God. We're just laying hold of Christ. John Calvin We explain justification simply as the acceptance with which God receives us into his favor as righteous men. And we say that it consists in the remission of sins and the imputation of Christ's righteousness. We've been accepted and received because of what Christ has done. I have to read the whole quote here. This is some good stuff. Surely there is no one who is not sunken in infinite filth. So as you look at ourselves, we see our sinfulness. Let even the most perfect man descend into his conscience and call his deed to account, what then will be the outcome for him? So if you're saying, you know, based on my gospel obedience, my Christian obedience, he says, well, just look at that. (laughs) Your conscience is going to testify against the motives of your heart in doing what you have done. Will he sweetly rest as if all things were well composed between him and God and not? Rather be torn by dire torments? Since if he be judged by words, he will feel grounds for condemnation within himself. So if you're you're looking within yourself, even examining your own words, the heart motive, you're going to sense that condemnation even within yourself. The conscience, if it looks to God, must either have sure peace with his judgment or be besieged by the terrors of hell. Therefore, we profit nothing in discussing righteousness unless we establish a righteousness so steadfast that it could support our souls in the judgment of God. And when our soul possesses that by which they may present themselves fearless before God's face, sounds like Hebrews, and receive his judgment undismayed, then only may we know that we have found no counterfeit righteousness. To look at God's righteous bar, his judgment, and have confidence is because of Christ Jesus. Now, there are three picture words given for us that I'm just going to put out there for you just to latch on to. We're meant to comfort us, to give assurance And they all underlined the fact that salvation is outside of us, that God has done it for us in Christ. One was William Perkins' chain. And what he saw is that these aspects of salvation were linked together. Election, vocation, that's the old English Puritan word for effectual calling. Um, You get the idea of uh, vocals or calling, but it's an an office here. An effectual calling to salvation. Faith. Faith. Adoption, justification, sanctification, and eternal glorification. So these are links Romans 8 gives to us. And so the question he's asking, how do you know? You can't look into eternity past and say, well, I, was, I, I can look at God's decree of me in Christ Jesus. You can't, we can't look there to see the secret decree. Nor can I look into the future to see me in heaven. <laughs> so how can I have confidence? And he said, Romans 8 links these things up beautifully. So what we were able to do is to pull on the middle links of the chain and ask, have I been given the gift of faith? Have I seen my sinfulness, which the law has exposed? Have I seen Christ in his glory? That is that he's fulfilled the law for me, and he has lived the perfect life, he's paid the punishment, he's been raised, and I look to him as my only savior. That is the marks of the character of faith that God gives as a gift. So we're able to pull on the middle link, and it, because it's connected to eternity past and future, where there's a confidence that we're able to have now because of God's promises in Christ. That was, it's called the golden chain. He wrote a book on the golden chain. That was one picture that was given. Another picture I've termed the vault. They don't use the term vault, they use rich storehouse, treasure house. And the idea that all of salvation is sealed up in Christ, if you think of a, a bank vault. there are terms, again, a rich storehouse. It's all there. And to gain access, we we receive Christ. We believe, we trust in Christ. We rest on Christ. And if you have Christ, then because all salvation is sealed in him with his doing, his death on the cross, his resurrection, his exaltation, then you have all of salvation in Jesus Christ. And so, John Calvin, here's the blue. We see that our whole salvation and all its parts are comprehended in Christ idea of a vault. If we seek salvation, if we seek the gifts, if we seek strength, I'm just reading the blue here, if purity, if gentleness, redemption, acquittal, remission of sins, uh, satisfaction, purification, reconciliation, mortification, newness of life, immortality, inheritance, protection, security, abundant supply of all blessings, untroubled expectation of judgment, then you get them from what is sealed in Jesus. And he underlines... It's of him. I'm now going through the orange. His anointing, his dominion, his conception, his birth, his passion, his condemnation, his cross, his sacrifice, his blood, his descent, his tomb, his resurrection, his entrance into heaven, his kingdom, that he's the judge. The rich storehouse, he says, of every kind of goods abounds in him. Let us drink our fill from this fountain and from no other. There's the confidence. So chain and a vault. Another one, is alien righteousness. And I'll just move forward. I wasn't thinking of this, but I thought that was interesting. <laughs> There's no E.T. to draw from, right? But I just thought, that's great. <laughs> Reformationart.com. It's, it's outside of us. It's in Christ. And then this one by Moeller, looking at the stars. The culture says you have an alien problem to be solved by an inner solution. So They say the problem's outside of us. We can solve it. The gospel says you have an inner problem that will be solved only by an alien righteousness. So with that in mind, that's what Paul harmonizes with in Philippians 3 as Pastor Pat took us through. Notice two categories. There's personal righteousness according to the law. We're trying to keep the law and obey, to be approved by God. And there's God's righteousness. And what does Paul say about personal righteousness? Well, he says he suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. He says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. So he looks at his best deeds, and he says, it's, it's loss. It's nothing. And what does he find in Christ? He says, there, it's the righteousness from God. It's received. That's what's called alien righteousness. It's always outside of us. It's never attached to our doing. Okay, now we can deal with the threats. Okay, so this is the bad slide. This is not meant to be. It has some scripture text, but it's how these heretics use these texts. And Pastor Pat actually walked us through Romans 2. It becomes a critical text for these heresies. Now, I wanted the yellow brick road because the whole question is your walk, your Christian walk. How do you interpret that in light of a final justification getting to heaven? So I don't mean to be, I I love uh, Wizard of Oz, but I just thought it just kind of gets with the flitting idea of you know, what does she find there? Some some a wizard that's uh, hiding behind a screen that has to be exposed. I, I thought that just just great metaphor picture for me. So telling text. If you ask somebody, Rome, the Roman Catholic Church, or you ask Federal Vision or New Perspectives of Paul, how they deal with this, that becomes these watershed issues around this. Okay, so Romans two six through eight. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well doing. Seek for glory and honor and immortality. By the way, notice seeking, so there's perfect motives here. Your whole motive is to be patient, endure, and your well-doing has to be good doing with the motives that he will give eternal life. Okay, That's the principle of the law of works, as Pastor Pat underlined. Uh, 2.13, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Jesus underlines the same theme in John 5. He says, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now, how will you interpret those texts? That's the question. And we're seeing this movement of identifying us as the doers to be finally justified. Is it to be applied to us? Well, this section here is heresy, okay? So the yellow. I've done my best as I've read new perspectives of Paul issues and the Federal Vision. I'll give you some resources on the next slide to capture in the little phrase, what is being taught. So just to make sure that you don't think this is reformed, I wrote, Rome recovered, so they're bringing back Rome, Reformation covered, gospel falsified, justification denied, assurance <laughs> lost. last message. This is bad. <laughs> so don't, don't think this is not positive. It sounds really good, God gracious, Christ working in me, a lot of good talk. But it's bad because it anchors a final judgment justification based on my my deeds and what I'm doing today. So here's the best I could to pull this together. God graciously provided Christ to pay for sins. You know, Rome didn't have an issue with that. And justify. We saw Rome talking about justification. Declare righteous. The one who has faith in Jesus. They're going to say, you have to believe in Jesus. So that the believer can be gifted with the grace. That's infused. Try to use that talk. In order that God might justify or declare righteous and grant the reward of eternal life to the believer at the final judgment based on their faith-filled, Christ-empowered obedience. A lot of Christ talk, faith talk. So what they want is this double justification. They're going to say, Christ, you're declared righteous by God in Christ, believing in him. But there's a final one, and that'll be done based upon your Christ-empowered obedience, your Christian faithful obedience. Sounds really good with Christ talk. In other words, Romans 2, 6-8 John 5, are applied to God's final justification of Christian obedience. That God will grant final salvation, a final justification, and final eternal life to faith-filled obedience. That's how they're applying those texts. Here's some resources. This one has just been most recent. Kara has been interviewed on Reformed Forum. I really appreciate the book. It's dealing with new perspectives of Paul and their players uh, on N.T. Wright. James Dunn, E.P. Sanders, or some, but it's, it's spread. By now it's been out there for 20 years and it's in pulpits and in Christian institutions. And I really want to draw your attention to here. Remember, I, I love to give you context, but here's one of his summaries on the justification chapter. So these are good books. These are reformed responses. Uh, Waters, very helpful. Kara's done research. What, what these guys have said is as you look at Second Temple Judaism, so the culture around uh, the time of Jesus before and after, he's going to say that they didn't have a, um, the view that Paul, or at least that the Reformed Church had, of works. They're going to argue that what we saw on the other slide, that the Jews then believed you got in by grace, and you had to maintain it by your good works. And that God, in justification, is just declaring himself faithful, and what he's wanting to do is bring in the Gentiles into that community. Okay, so they, they turn things on its head, By using Second Temple Judaism, what this gentleman does is actually says, well, let's look at the resources. Oh, they are talking about, uh, in other words, what they're saying, these resources are saying, is not what they're saying. Let's actually read them. So I think this is very helpful, and then he looks at Paul's writings. Um, I don't want to get into all the particulars of it, but I think the slide before you probably says as much. So here's a summary statement of new perspectives, and they're, again, relying on these external data on Second Temple Judaism that this guy is saying, hey, that's not even, that's not even right what they're saying about it. Um, initial justification is by faith and recognizes covenant status. That's Ecclesiology is to be in the church. While final justification is partially by works, albeit works produced by the Spirit. I believe we saw that with Rome's condemnation. Same stuff. Justified, and there's a final justification based upon the fruit in your life, Christian obedience. That's what New Perspective is saying. So Rome said, hey, I don't want to say guilty by association, but I do want to say guilty by association. There's some serious issues and similarities. So that was called New Perspectives of Paul. And again, justified, but then the final justification based upon your obedience. Federal vision. This So the New Perspectives, you saw a lot of it coming out of um, Britain, but... It made its way through a lot of our, um, I would say like UNL. I I had a friend that got exposed to it even at UNL in the religious studies. And then he went to Master's Seminary under John MacArthur. And then he ended up imbibing and taking what he was taught at UNL okay, with the new perspectives of Paul. So I would call him a heretic, even though I went to seminary with him, unfortunately. It's it's sad. I I pray that he is exposed to scripture. So that's more the British influence, but it's also in our um, secular institutions as an example of Christianity. Okay, so it's everywhere. Federal vision is more of a Presbyterian take on the same issue. A little bit different perspective. You have Douglas Wilson, James B. Jordan, Peter Lathart, and Norman Shepard. Norman Shepard was at Westminster, um, uh, Philadelphia, Presbyterian school there. And they finally had to clean house with him. It, because they're talking, remember they're using that language it sounds so Christian. And then you start realizing, wait a minute, this is not the gospel. So, he's summarizing, Waters is summarizing this position. It's a denial of the imputation of Christ's perfect obedience and full satisfaction. So, N.T. Wright, on New Perspectives, doesn't believe that Christ obeyed for us. Um, same kind of issues. And again, they're doing the best to summarize. There's different players that have their different little angles. So, we're just, we have to generalize to capture it. Three, we've observed justification is framed in more than forensic. That would be law categories. But, it brings in Transformation. Again, there's a growth and loss of justification. And then, four, an interchangeability of justification and salvation talk. Same kind of stuff. A um, couple more. Number five, out of federal vision, the yellow there. A view of final justification that appears to supplement the verdict of present justification. So, again, they say we're justified in Christ, but then there's a final justification based on our obedience. It's a process, number six and that good works, number seven, are necessary to the believer's justification. Okay, Reformed response, dealing with Romans 2. That's how they take Romans 2. Here's the Reformed response. And this is what Pastor Pat took through us in the first session. It's so good, especially when he emphasized that he justifies the ungodly. That's key. So, Reformed response. When Romans 2, and he read John Calvin to us on this issue, that only the doers of the law will be justified and rewarded with life. This is the principle of the works of the law required by God's justice. And then what they do, and we're going to do, is interpret that text in light of Romans 5. Um, Romans 5 uses the same kind of language of Adam's disobedience and Christ's obedience. So because of Adam's disobedience to uphold the principle of the works of the law, that would be that up there, um, consequently, Romans 3.20, and Pat took us through this, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. You can't do it. That's the principle. But because of the fall, because we're an Adam, can't do it. And therefore, humanity's only hope for eternal life as the reward of righteousness. So we're not dogging Romans 2. We're saying, actually, let it uphold it in all its glory. The only doers of the law will be justified. Only those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Let that hold. But you can't do it. <laughs> Only Christ can, and so Romans 3.22 points us to the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. There's the storehouse, the vault, the alien righteousness for all who believe. So here's some helpful text on the security of justification. We'll close it here. Romans 3.24, and are justified by his grace as a gift. I don't see any works in there of ours. What's it attached to? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's more justification. You want to be declared right with God? And you have your sins paid for. And it's secured by Jesus' redemption. Romans 3.28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. The reformers don't have any problem with the great white throne judgment. But it's not there to justify or declare us righteous. It's going to be a public display of God's grace to believers because Christ has already done it. That's how they viewed that great white final throne. We stand before God and the books are opened. We're going to be a testimony of God's grace because we've already been declared righteous in Christ, which glorifies him. Uh, four, five, And to the one who does not work but believes in him, and this text is so crucial, this is the one you wanted to latch on to, justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. Well, if you're going to say, God justifies me at the great white throne based upon my Christ-centered obedience, my faithfulness. That text says he only justifies the ungodly, so you're out. (laughs) I don't care what you attach to Jesus Christ or the Holy Spirit. If you're not classified as the ungodly who trusts in Christ, there's no chance for justification. It's only for the ungodly who come in their sinfulness and trust in Christ's righteousness, sealed in him. Love that text. And then we already saw In Romans 4.25, raised for our justification. It's attached to his redemption and his resurrection. It's done. (laughs) And then 5.18, Therefore, as one trespass led condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, Christ's righteousness, leads to justification and life for all men. You say, well, who are the all? Well, the all in Adam got his condemnation, and the all men in Christ, they are granted justification and life because of Christ's one act of righteousness, it all goes to him. So there's assurance. So You say, well, I'm struggling with sin in my life. What God wants you to look at is look at Christ and look at all of his promises he's made in Jesus. And then you can look back and say, do I see my sinfulness and need for Jesus? Well, that's a testimony of the gift of faith that he's granted. And then you can look at the character of your fruit, but that should drive you to look right back at Jesus Christ. Because then even in your fruit, you're going to see, difficulties in sin in sinful motives that's not your confidence there's encouragement that you're seeing your sinfulness it should drive you then to go what's the solution for my sinfulness christ he's obeyed for me and his resurrection is the god's acceptance of christ's obedience for me his death for me he's paid the entire debt of my sin that will sustain me for all eternity and you know what the beauty of god's law that was so scary now is affirming and encouraging to us right because the law that condemned us is now the very law that's been upheld that supports us for all eternity. Because God cannot compromise his law. It would be to compromise his character. He will not do that. So if he declares us righteous because Christ has fulfilled the law, that law is an encouragement to us to look to, to say, it's been fulfilled. I have eternity with him, accepted with him, because of what he's done. Now, how about confidence? <laughs> it's a law now thing. It's God's justice. It's God's character that's at stake. He won't compromise that. We know he hasn't because he sent his son for us out of his love. Well, hopefully that helps tie some of those justification assurance. You've seen the the attack on it by the Roman Catholic Church, the Reformation trying to grab justification assurance and hold it in our confessions. You've seen the threats, and there's some scary players that I won't name, but you'll have to go back and grab Pat's book. Sorry, I know you want me to say who forwarded it, but... It's fun to go back (laughs) to the pastor. Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ. The Lord may all glory and praise go to him. I just want to end with Philippians 2, that he's been exalted and given a name above every name, so that the name of Jesus, everyone would confess that he is Lord to your glory. Lord, we are so thankful we we give you praise. Um, May we just grow in the confidence of understanding these precious truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ.